Welcome in to the Tuesday edition of Tapping the Kite Daily. It is September 19th. We're going to go through Brewers-Cardinals rivalry, hate power rankings. We'll explain in honor of Adam Wainwright, uh, we had to do it. We're also going to talk about lessons learned from Green Bay Packers week number two. We're going to get the first look at the New Orleans Saints. And I have hot takes about Marquette's Big East schedule, which dropped last Friday. Before we get going, uh, just a reminder to follow along on social media. I always remind you, but uh, you just you need it. Uh, tap in the keg on Twitter, tap in the keg sports on Instagram, as well as TikTok. Make sure you're subscribed to the pod, whether it's Apple, whether it's Spotify. If you're already subscribed to the pod, make sure that you're dropping us in the group chat. Have a discussion about your most hated Cardinals uh, because I, I feel like this list could go in multiple different directions. If you're a little younger, if you're a little older, they, the lists would all be different. Uh, but yeah, it's it should be a fun show. Uh, we do tape four days a week. If you're new to the program and you're wondering how does the scheduling work, uh, first of all, we usually do not get pods out uh, after the day has started. Usually I do it at nights, but you know sometimes scheduling gets in the way. Uh, but yeah, uh, Monday, Tuesday, off Wednesday, then Thursday with Mitch, and then Friday uh, ha- is the schedule. Uh, for the foreseeable future, I will say that once the Brewers playoffs get started, we'll pro- we might move to five days uh, just based on ske- on scheduling. Uh, next week also will be unique because the Packers plan Thursday. So uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's going to get a little strange in terms of scheduling stuff, but that, so I was like, oh yeah, that's the standard. And I'm realizing like, well, next week you got a Thursday game. Week after that, you have a Monday game. You have the baseball playoffs starting. Um, and so yeah, it's, it's going to get a little wonky in that regard, but we will figure it out. Uh, the, the, the schedule we've had for the last few weeks will get a little bit turned on its head, but that's okay. Uh, all right, let's move in to our most hated Cardinals power rankings. So Milwaukee Brewers lost last night to Adam Wainwright, one to nothing. They've lost Adam Wainwright 22 times. Adam Wainwright has owned the Brewers. You could argue that he might be the ultimate Brewer killer in terms of a pitcher, where every time Adam Wainwright seemingly went to the mound against the Milwaukee Brewers, he absolutely shoved. And the Brewers-Cardinals rivalry is not the same as it was you know, back in the early 2010s, right? When the two teams battled it out in the NLCS, the Cardinals were successful. Um, a lot of us, including myself, saw the Cardinals celebrate at Den Miller Park, uh, which stung and it, it hurt us for a long time. But then, you know, as the Brewers have been the model of consistency, and you could argue that the Brewers are a more consistent, good franchise, consistently good franchise than the St. Louis Cardinals at this point. The Cardinals haven't come along for the ride, right? To 2018, the Brewers were, you know, one of the best teams in the National League. The Cardinals did not make the playoffs. The Cardinals made the playoffs in 2019, and the Brewers and Cardinals would have locked up in the NLCS, but the Brewers lost to the Nationals, and then the Nationals would go on to beat the Los Angeles Dodgers, who faced the Cardinals in the NLCS. The Nationals were successful. So that would have been the time to kind of reignite the rivalry. And I know you're like, well, what do playoff matchups have to do with it? I I think it's playoffs and pennant races, right? And Cardinals and Brewers had a little bit of that in 2022, uh, but they never, you know, they never sought to conclusion as the Brewers sort of faded down the stretch. Had the Brewers sort of risen up 
and it had been down to the wire, we would have seen that oomph. We would have seen that juice. And I think right now we have it with the Cubs, and partly it's due to the Cubs being successful, but also there have been a lot of great games between the Brewers and Cubs this year. I think the Brewers and Reds is an emerging rivalry, but I think the Reds need to have a little more success against the Brewers. Now I say that, and then the Reds knocks out of the playoffs, and I'm going to be like, no, we didn't need success. Uh, But yeah, I, I think that... The Cardinals and Brewers still hold a special place in a lot of people's heart, right? Um, in terms of a rivalry, it's a most hated team, uh, I believe. Still, it still impacts people. It's still something that people want to beat the Cardinals, and the Cardinals still seem to have like a psychological edge against the Green Bay or uh, the the Milwaukee Brewers. And I realize why I said the Packers is because, as my guy Steve pointed out on Twitter yesterday. You know, the Cardinals are kind of the Packers of the NL Central. They've, they're the premier franchise. They're the franchise that always seems to find themselves on top. And the Brewers are really like the Minnesota Vikings, where they haven't won a lot. They're usually successful. But it seems like the team, the Cardinals, uh, who are the Packers, have that sort of psychological edge against them, even if the Brewers will trip them up from time to time. So Adam Wainwright getting 200 wins against the Brewers is not really that surprising. And the fact that the Brewers scuffled in the game is not really that surprising. Uh, The offense went to sleep again, which has been a constant theme uh, in the losses that the Brewers have had during this hot sort of six-week stretch. I do worry a little bit. Like I have a tinge of concern as you head out on the road and you lose the game one nothing that maybe you run out of gas here. You've been so good. You've been playing such good baseball that the law of large numbers would tell you that they're going to regress slightly. And you saw it with the Seattle Mariners, right? I think the Brewers are a better team than the Seattle Mariners. The Seattle Mariners were red fucking hot. And then all of a sudden, they lost eight of their... I think they were... They're eight and 12 in their last 20. They did win last night against the Oakland Athletics. But like... It, it's bound to happen. It's baseball. And it's such a long season where you can't stay good forever, usually. Uh, the Chicago Cubs are dealing with that right now, right? They are in complete free fall. And I would expect the Cubs to start winning some baseball games this week for that exact opposite reason. So it, it's just, it usually doesn't continue. At some point, you turn it around and the Brewers, I, I worry it's the inverse, right? I worry that maybe this is the start of something. Now, I think the Cardinals put all their eggs in this basket tonight. I think the Cardinals were determined to win this game. I'm very curious to see when the Cardinals start, you know, sort of resting guys and sort of get ready for next season. And you let Jordan Walker and Mason Wynn sort of build on this season. Maybe Alec Burleson's another young guy that they have on that roster. But maybe more time off for guys like Arenado and Goldschmidt. Maybe not a full shutdown, but just habitual days off as sort of the last thing of the Cardinal season has been checked off with Adam Wainwright's likely last start in Bush Stadium and what would probably be to assume his last start as a St. Louis Cardinals player. Like going out on that is going out on a high note as much as you can. It's sort of the one thing that the Cardinals have from a disaster of a season is at least Wayno got his 200th win. At least he got it inside Bush Stadium. There, there will be fans that take solace in that. So as for the larger topic about hate, sports hate for the St. Louis Cardinals and the most hated Cardinals as Brewers fans, um, 
I have quite the list. Uh, it's a power rankings. It's not about Rushmore. We couldn't stop it for. I was really originally was going to do this as like a secondary topic, and then I realized like how many memories I have with these players and just some of the names that are so triggering. And I came up with a full list, um, which I could always share out uh, later on. But I'm going to do a top ten, and then I'll talk about some of the other nominees that did not make that top ten list. All right, number one on the Cardinals hate list is Yadier Molina. Yadier Molina has to be number one. He just drove all of us nuts. Uh, I think that I can speak for Brewers fans and say that the things that were annoying about Yadier Molina were that he was a very clutch player. He was a very good catcher. Uh, never felt you would steal a base against Yadier Molina. It was annoying as fuck to hear Brian Anderson and Bill Schroeder flate him throughout broadcast where it's like, does Yadier Molina play for the Brewers? Does he play for the fucking rival that you're facing off against? He was a prick. He, he Everything would seem to get under his skin. Like Yadier Molina is one of my least favorite athletes of all time. Like he just this. And, and I, I also want to point, like I don't actually hate these people. It's just people that annoy you from a sports perspective, okay? So don't no don't get triggered by the, the word hate, all right? But Yadier is a prick, and I do not, I have no goodwill towards that guy. I, I don't really need to see him succeed. I don't need to see a push for him to get to the world, to the Hall of Fame, which is going to fucking happen, even though the numbers and the that don't matter. It's all based on intangibles, and it's fucking stupid. So yeah, Yadier Molina is a clear number one. Uh, number two is Tony La Russa. Not a player, but fuck Tony La Russa. That guy, I, again, have no goodwill towards. He was just a crotchety old man. He hated the Brewers, hated sort of the Brewers' young energy. Uh, it always seemed like he pushed the right buttons against Ron Renneke, Um, and that was frustrating in itself. Like, Tony La Russa obviously was a good manager back in the day. Um, when he came back to the Chicago White Sox, I think we need a 30 for 30 on why La Russa decided that was a good idea into his late 70s, early 80s. Maybe he saw his buddy Trump do it, and he's like, okay, I can I can do this. Like, I can I can still be a guy. And then he realized, like, I have, I'm so fucking out of touch. It's not even funny. Which, like, I love that that's, like, the last part of Tony LaRusso's legacy, that he couldn't let it go. He couldn't let, his ego couldn't help him to just be retired and enjoy Florida and and drink drink and drive. Like, that. that's all Tony LaRusso had to do. And yet, he had to come back and manage this miserable White Sox team. Now, I know some people will say, well, Charlie, they made, they made the, the playoffs. Yeah, they made the COVID Mickey Mouse playoffs get out of my face uh so anyways i like i do not like Tony La Russa. maybe i like i hate Tony La Russa more than than yadi or melina but larusso was so frustrating to go against because he would always you know have multiple pitchers you know this was before the three pitcher rule where there would be like six or seven pitching changes the games were always like four fucking hours because tony larusso had to tinker and do different things with the bullpen and it, it just drove you wild as a fan uh, he took advantage of the old archaic rules of baseball. But yeah, Tony Relusa is definitely number two. Number three is John Jay, that motherfucker. Like John Jay is not a good baseball player, all right? Uh, but John Jay was a Hall of Famer against the Milwaukee Brewers. John Jay is the classic guy where he always does better against your team. I remember it was funny. I was living with my guy Mike at the time and 
he's a Cubs fan, and he was saying how Billy Hamilton was like that, where it's like Billy Hamilton does not have good stats, but against your team, you think he's hitting 400. And I felt that way about Billy Hamilton with the Brewers as well, but I also felt that way with John Jay. John Jay always seemed to get big hits. I, I couldn't explain it. It was so it would you never wanted to see John Jay up in the eighth or ninth inning. He always seemed to find a way to get a ball out into the outfield and get the Cardinals the run they needed, uh, or be like the spark plug for the Cardinals for a big inning. David Freeze is number four. Maybe a little high for David Freeze, I'll admit, but the fact that David Freeze, you know, is a catalyst for the Brewers not being in the World Series in 2011 is more than enough to put him at number four. Uh, you know, obviously had this out of body experience in the 2011 uh, playoffs and just got to another level. Freeze rejecting his getting into the Cardinals Hall of Fame saying he wasn't good enough was so David Freeze and Hurts, so Cardinals, so Cardinals way. Just so, such weird, you know, things about that fan base all together. Uh, number five is Chris Carpenter. Uh, Chris Carpenter, even though he never really had that big of an impact in the playoff series, he was a special kind of prick. He was kind of from the LaRusso old school mentality. If you can remember, him and Niger Morgan got into it in 2011. Uh, he seemed to always pitch pretty well against the Brewers. Uh, was a, a solid, you know, pitcher that the Cardinals had and the Brewers didn't. Um, and at that time, you know, we had Granke, we had Markham, but it, it, I think there was always this frustration that the Cardinals had guys that we didn't, or they'd turn guys into great players, kind of what the Dodgers do now. Uh, I've said, you know, in the past that Cardinals Devil Magic has transferred over to Dodgers Devil Magic because it, it just seems like they reinvent dudes all the time. Like, look at even he, I think he gave a couple runs uh, yesterday, but look at Lance Lynn, who's on this list, I think. Lan oh, I'll talk about Lance Lynn later, but like Lance Lynn's an example. Um, Jason Hayward, former Cardinal, who has just come to, he has like, had his best o OBP season of his entire career and he's 35. Like, if that's not Cardinals Devil Magic, I don't, or Dodgers Devil Magic, I don't know what to tell you. Like, and they have all this young pitching and somehow they, they figure it out. Like, it's, they just have a way about them. And that's what the Cardinals used to do in the early 2010s. They, every button they pushed seemed to be the right one. So uh, I think it's transferred over to the the Dodgers. Uh, number six is Adam Wainwright. Uh, yes, I, this is the time where now we had Adam Wainwright. Adam Wainwright never had any direct impact on the postseason year for the, the Cardinals and the Brewers, but he always was a thorn in the side. You never wanted to see Adam Wainwright, you know, go against you. I, I, you'd always look at the pitching matchups for the St. Louis Cardinals and you'd see certain guys and you'd be like, fuck, we got to face that guy. Um, they're not on the top 10. They're definitely in the nominees, but it'd be like, if you saw Wainwright, Jaime Garcia, Michael Walker, like those guys were always like, fuck, how do we, the Brewers are going to get swept because they all had good numbers against the Brewers and the Brewers just could not seem to beat those dudes. And that, that's, that was always a frustration, you know, throughout the Cardinals Brewers rivalry. Uh, but yeah, Adam Wainwright not necessarily did anything where it was prickish or dickish. It just seemed like Adam Wainwright, you know, always was a thorn in the Brewers' side. I will also say, like, on a side, not, you know, I would never cheer injuries or anything like that. 
But I always remembered that his, he tore that ace, his Achilles against the Brewers, fielding a pop-up. I remembered it again after the Rodgers injury, uh, where I was like, you know, notable like Achilles injuries that I was watching. And it's a weird thing, right? Very sort of like you have way too much useless information in your head. Uh, my friend Pat last week went, I forget, I think it was railing off like, college oh no it was like high school mascots in the state of wisconsin and pat was like how much useless information do you have in that fucking head and i was like way too much and one of them was like notable achilles injuries where i was watching and it was like wainwright i remembered rogers and then kobe i was at dukes of all places when kobe uh tore his achilles uh so yeah i mean i don't know memorable achilles uh Injury memories. Uh, but yeah, uh, Adam Wainwright definitely uh, in that sports hate list. Uh, Matt Carpenter uh, is number seven. Matt Carpenter maybe should be higher. Uh, maybe you flip him and Chris Carpenter. Matt Carpenter never had it. Never had a a you know bad day against the Brewers. Uh, it was always clutch hits. You never wanted to see Matt Carpenter up. He had more pop than John Jay. So it was like, oh hey, Matt Carpenter's gonna hit a home run here. You got to make sure you account for that uh, when the Brewers and Cardinals are facing each other. He absolutely tormented the fucking Brewers and I hate Matt Carpenter. So uh, definitely a worthy seven, but I actually, now that I look at this, I think we're going to go Matt Carpenter five, Chris Carpenter seven. So we're switching the Carpenters. If you have Carpenter in your last name and you play for the Cardinals, you're likely going to torment the Brewers. That's the rules. Carlos Martinez. I don't know what happened to Carlos Martinez. I think he got fat, uh, but he absolutely destroyed the Brewers forever. It didn't matter. It was like, Carlos Martinez was pitching as a starter. If Carlos Martinez was pitching as a reliever, he fucking shoved against the Brewers. They never knew what to do against Carlos Martinez. Uh, in that same you know category of you look at the pitching matchups and you see Wainwright, you see Waka, Garcia, you see Carlos Martinez. He was in, on that list too, where you just did not want to see Carlos Martinez as, as one of the three or four pitchers you were facing. Lance Lynn, another guy who had that. Lance Lynn owned the Brewers earlier this year. Like nothing changed. Uh, he was a vital part of that 2011 team just coming up. Uh, the famous Lance Lynn story, if you guys know that one or don't, uh, I'll tell it quickly. Uh, I was living with my guy Seth at the time. A lot of shout outs today. Holy shit. But I don't know. The Brewer Cardinals have a lot of memories, right? Um, I was living with him at the time and he was in his bedroom and I was watching the Brewers. And, or no, I, I forget how the story actually, maybe he got home. And he got home and I was like deeply watching Brewers, Brewers Cardinals. And I'm just screaming at my TV because they're Lance Lynn has a bat. And whoever the Brewers pitcher was couldn't get a strike. And they walked Lance Lynn. And I'm like, it's Lance Lynn. Like, I was just, so, I think I said it a little bit. Like, I was like, it's Lance fucking Lynn. Like, you got to figure it out. And then as all stories go with guys, like it changes, right? Like, I don't know if you guys are like this, but when I have a story with my friends, it, it's never actually the story. Like there was a, there was a story. I'll tell this one too. Why not? Uh, it, it was, I was 21. I walked a girl home from the bar. I did not go home with her. And then I was frustrated because I realized what I did. And I, I just blew a layup and I broke a door and it was a flimsy door. It was a flimsy door and I just chicken winged it, right? And Seth, same guy, asked me like why that happened. And I said, well, it was because I was sexually frustrated. And it's kind of a joke. Like I was, I was not really that serious. 
And then they made me out to be like Michael Scott or Andy Bernard that I like punched the door and was like, I'm sexually frustrated, which didn't happen. But that's that's guys. Like that's that's what happens. It's those stories just get molded and changed. I've probably told that story on the pod before. Uh, but it's a good one uh, for the newbies who who don't aren't familiar with work. All right. Uh, we were rabbit-tailed there. Uh, number 10 is Paul Goldschmidt. Uh, I think Paul Goldschmidt's hates a little bit from his days with the Arizona Diamondbacks, but a guy who just absolutely owns the Brewers. Um, similar in that Matt Carpenter category, where you always expect Paul Goldschmidt to do something big against the Brewers because he's done it for his entire career. He has great num- career numbers against the Brewers. I think he might have the highest batting average of anybody against the Brewers for his career, which, which is just an absurd stat and just very Cardinals uh, all together. All right, to review, before we, oh no, let's do the the other guys that didn't make the list and then we'll we'll run through the top 10 again. Would love to hear yours. Hit me up, Tevin the Keg on Twitter, Tevin the Keg Sports on Instagram as well as TikTok. Uh, I'm sure we all have our most hated Cardinals list. Uh, other guys that didn't make it, Matt Holiday. While I don't remember Matt Holiday that well, Matt Holiday batted 313 against the Brewers and had like 20 home runs. Awesome. Uh, like, well, you gotta include Matt Holiday, uh, but he didn't make the top ten because I didn't have any like seminal moments. Albert Pujols did not make the top ten. I I, I think that's kind of crazy, but look, like Albert Pujols was frustrating, but you always expected Albert Pujols to do well, right? And it was always the John Jays, the Goldschmidt's, the we're not Goldschmidt, Matt Carpenters of the world, where they're good but they're not great. Like you always expected Albert Pujols to have a moment. Albert Pujols is annoying because he's like this caretaker of baseball, and maybe he should have been maybe nine. Actually, we're gonna put Albert Pujols nine. Lance Lynn, you're out. Uh, maybe it's just because I wanted to tell a Lance Lynn story. Lance Lynn out. Albert Pujols is in. That was a mess when I was doing this last night. So Albert Pujols moving into the top ten. But yeah, I, I don't really have any issues with Pujols. It was more the annoyance of how many people would just bow to his feet, even though he might have lied about his age. Uh, Nolan Arenado, another nominee. Uh, Alan Craig, Pete Cosma, Michael Waka, Matt Adams, Colton Wong, Jack Flaherty. Uh, a bunch of guys that deserve deserve recognition, but are, are not uh, are not there. Uh, so yes, we... We have a, a great list, uh, the list to review, uh, the top 10. Like I said, I want to hear yours. Yadier Molina, Tony La Russa, John Jay. So uh, Molina one, La Russa two, John Jay three, David Vries four, Chris Carpenter, f- or no, Matt Carpenter five, excuse me, Wainwright six, Chris Carpenter seven, Carlos Martinez eight, Albert Pujols nine, and Paul Goldschmidt at number 10. So yes, the most hated Cardinals. The Brewers fans list of most hated Cardinals. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I had fun. I, I Look, uh, it's like the Cardinals and Brewers rivalry might not mean anything, but just to like reminisce about stuff that's broken your heart as a, as a sports fan is what it's really all about. Moving on to the Green Bay Packers and the biggest lessons learned from week number two. So if you might've remembered last Tuesday, We did a power poll of the Packers and we also did lessons learned. As I was thinking about it, I was like, you know what? 
the power pool is basically golden kegs. So we're not going to do it. Um, I think about a different way to, to do the power pool. Maybe it's like a post-September. We just look at where everybody is. And, you know, we do that after the trike game. So stay tuned on that. Uh, but you live and you learn, right? Um, it's a new season. You got to try stuff out. But basically, what are lessons that we've learned from week two and that we can take away and, you know, look for next week and kind of not only next week, but weeks ahead and what what sort of things that could define the next couple games. You know, I, I feel like the Packers season this year is split into a couple different categories, right? Because you have the first five games, then you have the bye. Then you have the next sort of stretch of games where you're at home a lot, I think. And then, then you have the Thanksgiving the stretch where you play the Lions on Thanksgiving and then you play the Chiefs on Sunday night. And that I think is, you know, the final sort of stretch of the season. That's kind of how I personally split up the season. Um, and I feel like this first five games with some tough competition, right? You Falcons, Saints, uh, Lions are all probably expected to be playoff teams. Um, probably not for the Raiders or the Chicago Bears. So I, I feel like if the Packers are three and two, it's a successful first five games. I'd love it to be four and one. Uh, I think it's on the table for them to potentially get there. I think it's wild that the NFC South has three two and zero teams. It kind of reminds me of the fact that the, everyone shit on the NL Central. Everyone's like, "Oh, what a what a terrible division the NL Central is." And right now, there's three playoff teams. Oh no, the Reds. The Reds are tied with the Cubs for a playoff spot. So uh, it's potentially not going to be all three. But it, there is a chance that the Brewers, Reds, and Cubs all get in the playoffs. So it's like, how bad are you as a playoff team? Play, as a division if three teams get in uh and right now you know nfl playoffs long ways away but there'd be three three nfc south teams uh with all being two and up so anyways uh lessons learned from week two i think quay walker is becoming a stud before our eyes i think we were all like Devonte wyatt you know looked great week one and everyone was excited he kind of took a step back you know last week and that's okay like a young player it's going to happen but Quay Walker had another good game. He was the highest rated guy on defense for pro football focus. Uh, and I, I thought it was a really solid performance from Quay. He was the only five keg guy that I had. The fact that he had 17 total tackles, he had eight overall, you know, solo. But the fact he was in on everything and making sure that they stopped the run as much as he could, I think is a really big thing going forward. And, you know, the Lions game next week is a big redemption. You get kicked out of that game, you know, for touching an official. And, you know, this is a major moment for Quay Walker this week. And, you know, can he, and he's working on channeling his emotions. And I think you're, you know, seeing it on full display. Um, he's playing a very physical brand of football and kind of becoming a guy before our eyes. And I, I really like that. I think that's something you hope with the young guys that they're going to develop into, you know, being premier players in the league. And we're not there just yet with Quay Walker, but I think it's, it's he's on the path. And that's a really good thing to see. Uh, number two is offensive line is off to a slow start. And that's a major concern. Uh, we talked at length about the Bakhtiari thing. Uh, Matt LaFleur did talk with the media yesterday and said that his knee flared up and that they, they've taken a step back. So after after Bakhtiari was great week one, uh, he has a near knee flare up. Now, it doesn't seem like it's a turf-related thing. I will ask a question, though. Uh, why didn't Matt LaFleur say this on Sunday, number one? Number two... Why did Eric Bakhtiari, David's brother, uh, have the fuck around and find out meme? 
So if he's having the fuck around and find out mean when Bakhtiari's named inactive and Matt LaFleur didn't talk about this yesterday and now it's a knee flare-up, are they trying to cover up for Dave? And that Dave's mental health did not let him play against Atlanta. I would rather Dave Bakhtiari just say it, that he didn't want to play in this game. I think because the Packers lost, you had to kind of now run cover for Dave Bakhtiari. And we'll see if he plays against the Saints. If he doesn't play against the Saints, I will eat some crow. Um, but if he does, it's going to look really fucking bad. You almost have to not play against the Saints. And maybe he doesn't, and maybe he plays against the Lions. But I think we have to reserve ourselves that David Bakhtiari is a part-time player. And the offensive line has struggled in terms of, you know, run blocking. And they've done a good job of protecting Jordan Love. But I'd argue, you know, the Bears and Saint and Falcons are two of the worst pass rushes in the league. Next week against Cam Jordan, against Demario Davis. Like, shit's going to change. Like, that's a different Saints front seven that you're going to be dealing with. And that you're going to be tested. Um, and I think you're going to have to re-examine how you do it now that Elton Jenkins is hurt too. Um, you're going to have to look at how do you how do you do things differently. I think Zach Tom goes to left tackle. I think that's number one. I don't know how Royce Newman is starting. If Royce Newman's starting when I go to Lambeau next week, I will boo the ever-living fuck out of Royce Newman. Uh, it has to be Sean Ryan in that in that scenario. And then you have Josh Myers at center. Myers actually had a decent pro football focus grade this week. Um, not everything, but I think that's a great like heat check to know like, hey, did a guy play well or did he not play well? Uh, and then who would, you, who would be your right guard in that situation? Would you, Josh Nyman would be your right tackle in that case. Nyman had some rough, rough snaps uh, as well. So let's see, I'm trying to think who am I missing that could potentially you know, fill in. And if you're pushing, oh, well, Runyon, I guess, yeah, Runyon would be the guy. Sorry, I forgot. Brain fart there. So Runyon's your right tackle. And Runyon hasn't had a right guard. So it's Runyon, Nyman on the right side, Myers in the middle, uh, Sean Ryan, and Josh Nyman. And then Rasheed Walker, sort of your sixth guy. Um, but, or I'm sorry, I think I said Tom. Tom's your left tackle. But you could do Rasheed Walker at left tackle. It wasn't a great you know, first game for Rasheed Walker, but I, I don't expect Rasheed Walker to just immediately, immediately get it. It's not, it's not easy. Preseason versus regular season, you know, things are, things are different. Other lessons learned. Uh, going back defensively, the Packers continue to play undisciplined defensively, but that doesn't fully excuse Joe Barry. I thought Justice Muscata did a really good, like, hey, don't blame Joe Barry. This is actually the defense's fault that, you know, why did Joe Barry do this? And it was basically a facetious look at, like, where the Packers' defense really struggled. I'd argue that Joe Barry didn't have these guys in proper position all the time, right? Like, Joe Barry's played normal Joe Barry style instead of focused on how do you attack Atlanta. And I think... The problem with Joe Barry, and I think the frustration that so many, including myself, have with Joe Barry, is that he doesn't adjust to the teams he's playing. He runs the exact same shit. And he's like, all right, well, we have a good defense. We're going to let our defensive scheme win out when you needed to put more guys in the box. Let Desmond Ritter beat you. Put these guys on an island. I know Jair was struggling. I'm going to get to Jair in a second. But at like... Let Desmond Ritter beat you down the field with Drake London or Matt Collins. Like to me, that or Kyle Pitts, who's a complete ghost at this point. Like let those guys win. Don't let, you know, Bijan Robinson, Algier, and Ritter's legs beat you. And Joe Barry did not seem to care. Joe Barry was like, nope, we're gonna run our shit. We're gonna figure it out. We're gonna be okay. 
and it didn't work. And they sent a little bit of pressure at, at Ritter, but I don't think enough. I, I expected Desmond Ritter to be the guy that would have lost the game for Atlanta. And, and you could argue, like, right, they dropped two interceptions in the first first half. And if they don't drop those interceptions, they get one. We said it yesterday. They probably win this football game. It's, it's very frustrating. There were a lot of Mickey Mouse things. Uh, Aaron Schatz had something, you know, it's a more of a advanced stat, nerd stat, if you will. But Atlanta was like 18%, you know, success rate in terms of winning the game. Now, I know success rate's different. He called it something else. But basically, Atlanta got lucky. Is If you want to just go, like Giants were the luckiest team, but Atlanta was number two. So it was a game they shouldn't have won. Those games are going to happen. Those either-or games are going to matter. It's just a matter that you're not on the wrong side of those either-or games, and that's how you miss out on the playoffs. Like, look at the Patriots. The Patriots could have easily won against the Eagles and Dolphins. There are Patriots fans that are probably doing podcasts similar to mine and being like, we could be 2-0. But instead, you know, the bounces didn't go our way, and we're 0-2. And I think it's really important for the Packers, especially the young team. And they they were pretty encouraging after the game. They're like, let's not let us divide. Let's build on this. They were saying, I think Ryan Wood noted, like, everybody was having conversations about what went wrong, and no one was really, like, down in the dumps at this point, which I think is great. Like, to me, that's that shows you that this team's a little more mature than maybe we gave it credit for. And I just you just can't let a lot of these either-or losses go on the other side. On the road, I'm a little more forgiving of it. It's like, if you have something like this happen in Lambeau, that's going to really, A, piss me off, but B, be sort of, I wouldn't say a death sentence for the playoffs, but something you'll look back on and be like, yeah, we needed that one. You know, game one is as important as game 17, uh, especially in football. Uh, I feel like all sports that matters, but football, it, uh, it matters the most because you'll go back and be like, wow, I wish I would have had that Falcons win when you're battling for a wild card spot and they have the overall tiebreaker. Uh, number four, uh, Jordan Love's still the guy. Uh, in case you needed this, still the guy. Uh, check in. Jordan Love's still there. Um, he only, you know, completed 14 passes, only 151 yards. I think some of that's still on LaFleur. Um, LaFleur is, has the restrictor played on Jordan Love. I'm very curious to see when that gets taken off. I, I feel like it's going to be after the Lions game, as frustrating as that is. Um, I'm not convinced that he's just going to let Jordan Love sling it uh, in these two games, but maybe. Uh, you know, the Lions just lost uh, uh, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson to a toward pectoral, so the Lions secondary is definitely going to take a step back uh, from where they were, uh, and maybe that's the opportunity to be like, all right, we're going to let Jordan spin it here, uh, and maybe when Christian Watson's back healthy, maybe that adds adds an element as well. But Jordan Love still looks looks the part, and I'm not wavering off of that. Bad fourth quarter, but as we alluded to yesterday, Aaron Rodgers had this in 20, 2008 where the Packers would you know need Rodgers to come up with a big drive, and he didn't. And there was a lot of critique of Rodgers after the season, like, oh, he's, he's not the guy, he can't do this, he can't lead a comeback. And it was just it was a young guy and he then did it a lot, you know, starting in 2009. And, and then, you know, there was always the kind of joke of, Oh, Aaron Rodgers can't lead a comeback. And then he he would. Um, but yeah, uh, it's definitely, uh, okay. I'm not going to freak out about a bad fourth quarter for Jordan Love. I, I think it's good experience. I, I truly, truly believe that if the Packers play the Falcons that same game in December, I think they win that game going away. I don't. I don't think it's close. So, I, I'll, I'll say that. I think the Falcons caught the Packers at the right time, and I think catching the Packers on the road early this year is going to benefit a lot of teams, uh, if, if possible. 
Number five is Jair Hat cannot take games off. Jay Alexander is a fucking leader of this team. He should be a leader of the defense. The tape for Jair is gross. Like, the tape is not good. Uh, and I'm not a huge tape guy, but I think Andy Herman had something where Jair was basically titty bumping and didn't want to tackle in terms of a run defense. It's fucking pathetic. He should be embarrassed by the way he played in this football game. Uh, Drake London ate his lunch. I know that's a phrase we've used before, but like Drake London went off against him. This is gross stuff from Jair. The critics of Jair, the critics of the Jair contract point to games like this. I still defend it. I still think Jair is a vital part of what you have in terms of your defensive backfield. But these kind of games cannot happen when you're a leader of this team. Like I consider Jair, Campbell, Kenny Clark, all leaders of the team. And they can't take games off. Not with a young team. All right. Maybe with a bunch of veterans, they have your back. Maybe that can happen. But Jair can't not show up. Um, And you have two big... Big test this week. You have Chris Olave, you know, on, on Sunday, and you have Amon Ross St. Brown on, on Thursday. So Jair has to show up in those games, and hopefully he will. Um, and you know we'll get fired up for Devontae in a couple weeks, um, but he's like, you got to show up every night. You got, you know, rents do every, every game that you play. And so hopefully Jair, you know, this is just a blip on the radar and, you know, this is not a theme when maybe a receiver isn't at, you know, Jair's perceived level because uh, we, we just can't have that. All right, let's move on to the first look for the New Orleans Saints and sort of see what kind of we can take away from the first two games the Saints have played. The Saints were on Monday Night Football, uh, so it was nice to be able to watch them um, and get an idea of, what the Packers might see uh, next Sunday. Just a few sort of thoughts, both on their offense and their defense. Uh, The Saints, let's start with the Saints offense versus the Packers defense. Uh, The offensive line for the Saints really struggled against Carolina's pass rush. Probably the best thing Carolina has. The Packers do also have a pass rush. Derek Carr, uh, the big bugaboo for him the last couple of years has been if you put Derek Carr under pressure, he really struggles. Uh, I think the Packers need to do that again. Uh, the Saints have a ton of talent on their offensive line, a bunch of first rounders, very like Packer defense vibes. They should be a lot better than they are, uh, but they've they've struggled. And I expect the Packers to bring the house. I wonder if you'll see more Rashawn Gary now that you're on you know Lambeau Field turf. Will Rashawn Gary have more snaps in this game and make things very difficult on Derek Carr? Because if you get to Derek Carr, he's gonna either turn the ball over or throw balls away and not be a productive you know, offensive player. So I really think the Packers can get to Derek Carr and frustrate him. I think that is the number one thing heading into this. The wide receiver trio that they have is the best the Packers I've seen so far. Uh, Olave, Rashid Shahid, and Michael Thomas. Like Michael Thomas is obviously past his prime, but he still has a little gas in that tank. Olave is one of the best young wide receivers in the game. Uh, Shahid is a game breaker. Um, and so those are guys that the Packers are going to have to deal with. And they haven't seen a receiving core like that so far this year. So that that is going to be a big time test. 
Injury issues at the running back position for New Orleans. Uh, Jamal Williams left with a hamstring injury. Uh, Seems to be a thing here with these running backs. A lot of soft tissue injuries to start the season. And Williams, I would assume, might not play. Um, We've seen a lot of these guys with the hamstring injuries not be able to play, you know, the following week. I think everybody loves Jamal Williams, so that'll be sad to not see him out there. Um, But that means that Troy Jones Jr. and Taysom Hill are the running backs for the New Orleans Saints. Uh, if you can't stop a pass rush with Troy Jones and Taysom Hill, I'm not sure where we're going. Like, if you wanna see how quick Joe Barry can get out of the hot seat is if Jones and Hill tear the Packers apart, that will be like firing squad for Joe Barry and freak you out about what happens on Thursday when Jameer Gibbs rolls in the town. Uh, and also you have the Taysom Hill Regian, which it's, it never seems to amaze me that Taysom Hill plays good against Packers. And then you have a bunch of motherfuckers who are like, oh, we should have we kept Taysom Hill. We should have kept Taysom Hill. My only thing with that is that I think the Packers were so archaic. And I think that with a, if Jordan Love is a quarterback, that may be a good question for Mitch in our our, pot, our question segment. If Jordan Hill, Jordan Love, excuse me, was the quarterback, would Taysom Hill have been on the roster? Like I don't know, it might have been a Rodgers thing, where it's like, would Rodgers be that innovative to work with a guy like Taysom Hill? I don't know. That's it's a good question. We'll we'll save that one. Uh, but yeah, Taysom Hill always seems to tear up the Packers, I, I, which is frustrating. Defensively, uh, the Saints look, you know, it's looked good on paper, right? They've held the Titans to 15 points. They held Carolina to 17, and the last one was kind of garbage timey. Uh, but the, the Packers' offense is the best one they'll see. They, they've played two of the worst offenses, likely, in football in Tennessee and in Carolina. Carolina, for sure. I, Tennessee's offense might be okay, but I, I'm not ready to anoint the Saints defense. Also worth considering, the Titans got the move the ball a little bit on the Saints. They just could not finish, right? They were like the, the guy at the bar who was talking to girls, but he, he couldn't, you know, bring it home or like my story earlier, right? They were they were kicking so many field goals. I think they kicked five field goals overall. So if you, you know, think about this a little bit, like the Titans were able to at least push the ball. Tynell also had three interceptions in that game. So I, I think like the Saints defense is a little bit overrated. And I think part of it's due to the veterans that they have on this this team because they're all sort of revered guys, right? Like Cam Jordan, Demario Davis, uh, Teron Matthew, Marcus May, Marcus Lattimore. Um, I, I really, I, I really, really don't necessarily think that they are as good as maybe they, it, it seems on paper. Like, I, I just, I'm not exactly bought in. I will say with the veteran part of this, I think it's worth noting that like this is the first veteran-led defense that the Packers have faced so far this year. And that can make things frustrating on a young team, right? A lot of different, you know, little shit that these guys can do that maybe the young Packers aren't necessarily ready for. I think Jacob Morley called it the Brat Pack, which I kind of like. Um, I, I don't hate that uh, for the young Packers, but that's definitely going to be a test. And you could also say the inverse, right? You could say, well, this young Packers team is going to be much faster than than you know what we see 
out of this out of the last two teams the Saints have faced and you know can the Packers sort of run them out of the gym if you will I realize it's not a gym it's Lambeau Field but you get my point right it's that's that same sort of thought as the younger more spry team versus sort of the older team it's two weeks now short week two for the Saints back-to-back road games for the Saints um just things to consider uh, it might be another tough day on the ground for the Packers, too. Uh, just getting ahead of that. Saints are very good against the run. Uh, they, Miles Sanders did practically nothing against them. Uh, Derrick Henry was okay, but he only rushed for like 4.2 uh, on average. So I uh, I look at that, and I, I think it could be another rough day for A.J. Dillon and company. Uh, but I, I did hear Matt LaFleur say we have to you know schedule, we have to scheme things a little bit differently for AJ Dillon, which I, I like that. Um, I like that they're you know not necessarily stuck in their ways, and they know they have to adapt. And if it's going to be another day of Dillon, which I think it will be, um, I don't think Aaron Jones is going to be out like IR. I think they're going to keep Aaron Jones till that Thursday game, um, and that'll be something we can talk about next you know next time with Mitch, because I, I just wonder with Jones and Watson, are they going to? wait till Thursday just because of that short turnaround soft tissue injuries and a conservative training staff will they wait to have all their guys because you can you can make an easy argument that that Lions game is so much more important than the Saints game but you also don't want to go one and two and then you're kind of in a must-win spot against the Lions or you're one and three to start the year which that's a that's a tough hill that's tough you know hole to climb out of if you're the Green Bay Packers and your only win against the Chicago Bears. Finish up today's show with a little Marquette basketball. We haven't done Marquette in a long time. Um, one of the, I guess, issues you have with so many things going on is some things get lost in the shuffle, right? We don't necessarily talk a lot about Marquette basketball recruiting or Marquette basketball offseason. Similarly with Wisconsin's offseason. Uh, it's very rare. Every now and again, obviously, with the transfer portal and football, but Things sort of, and also other teams where, you know, we won't talk that. We've talked a little bit about the Bucs. I think just because they've found themselves in the news, there's another Bucs topic that we certainly could have had today um, that we'll probably have to on uh, Thursday's show. But yeah, it's it's definitely tough to talk about everything. But I think with Marquette and getting their Big East schedule out finally last Friday, I do have some hot takes about it and some just overall thoughts about what Marquette has, you know, in terms of their Big East schedule. Number one, I hate the fact that they start on the road and they end the season on the road. As a team who won the Big East championship, both regular season and the tournament, I feel like that's kind of disrespectful. Like, would they really do that to UConn? Would UConn really get that same sort of disrespect? I realize it's a Tuesday night in December. I think the kids would be gone uh, from school. So maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe I'm overreacting. I still think like the last game really should be there considering a lot of those guys are probably headed off to the NBA. Like that should be a Saturday afternoon game. Like there should be a full senior day celebration in that regard instead of it being a Wednesday night in a very intense game against UConn. Uh, and that being the last game probably for a Tyler Kolick, a Cam Jones, and also a Gadara. Like, I just would like Marquette to get a little more respect. There is still that fucking mentality, the fact that we're starting and ending, you know, on the road. Um, that just seems a little unfair to what Marquette, you know, has brought this league. And there, there needs to be a little more respect there. Um, I'm also not a fan 
of this unbalanced schedule that Marquette seems to have. I didn't look and see if this is across the entire Big East. I guess it would make me feel a little bit better if it was the entire Big East, but it's really heavy early on. Uh, they have a lot of home games early in their Big East schedule. Then they play six out of eight on the road. Now, granted, it's really spread out. It's not necessarily like they're you know on the road for multiple weeks on end. So they, they kind of have that going for them. I think their only stretch where it's a lot of road game. It's a it's just kind of a wonky like looking schedule where they're in they're at Madison Square Garden on a Saturday. Then they go to DePaul, but they'll be home for a bit before they go out to DePaul, home for Seton Hall, but then back out on the road for Villanova and Georgetown. So that, I mean that's a that's a really, really tough biggie stretch. And but they get some time off within it in in between so i don't know man it, it's a really and then they're heavy you know down the stretch which i do think is big like i, I think that's another take i have is like four out of the last six at home are big but the fact that it's so unbalanced just makes it there's just more opportunity to lose games you shouldn't because you're just weary and you're playing too many road games. And I would I would just like to see more of a balanced schedule. I felt like last year, and maybe I'm just you know misremembering, but it felt like it was a more balanced schedule than what we've seen, what we see with this one. I'm not a huge fan of it. I feel like National Marquette Day falls on the perfect weekend and the opponent, you know, St. John's coming to town. If St. John's is as good as everybody says, I think St. John's is going to be the Colorado of college basketball. I saw Tate Frazier had that topic on One Shining Podcast. I did not listen, but I feel like it has to be St. John's, right? It's Patino. He doesn't necessarily have the same swagger as Dion. But his teams have a a swagger to them. St. John's being New York's team, you know, New York loves to rally behind, you know, bandwagon style, you know, teams and that's that stuff they do. And, you know, I could see St. John's being that sort of team and having that as your national Marquette Day. I think we'll get a lot of eyeballs and a lot of attention and you'll have a huge crowd for it. And it's Super Bowl Saturday, uh, which I think is great. Like it's, it, that'll be an awesome weekend. Uh, you'll have Marquette St. John's on Saturday, Packers against the Chiefs on Sunday. Just kidding. But seriously, like I, I think that's a really good day for it to fall on. Selfishly, I'm in Portugal for the like two weeks of the, of the Big East season. And the fact that National Marquette Day isn't during that time is big. Uh, I, I definitely like that. Lastly, uh, UConn and Creighton back-to-back in March will likely decide the Big East. Uh, those are probably the three best teams preseason-wise. Now, obviously, that can change, but it, that will likely decide what happens in the Big East in terms of who wins it. If Marquette goes back-to-back, if UConn is able to win it or Creighton's able to win it, uh, Marquette does go to Creighton. Uh, there's a lot of juice in that rivalry now uh, with the Shaka celebration and just the the kind of the matchups that those two teams had last year. Uh, they go to Creighton on the Saturday and then they're home for UConn to finish out their Big East home schedule. And that, that place should be rocking, even though I think it's a Wednesday or a Tuesday night like that. That there's no excuse that the five-star form won't be fill, filled for that one, but it, it should be um, with the season ticket packages and everything else. So very excited uh, for the Marquette season. Probably the most excited I've been for a college basketball season 
since I can remember, maybe since 2004, right after that final four year. Um, but even then, like Dwayne Wade left, so it wasn't the juice wasn't the same. The fact that everybody's back, it's I'll probably have to do that'll be definitely a, another Marquette topic we can do as we get closer to the season. Is like, is this the most excited I've been for Marquette basketball? I'd have to go back and look. Maybe that second year of Dominique James and West Matt. Well, we'll we'll talk about it. We'll we'll put a pin in it. I don't want to ruin the segment here uh, at the tail end of the pod. All right. That does it for today's show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, Like I said, we'll be back on Thursday with Mitch. And then Friday, we will do our Tabin Kick betting show that we've done the last two weeks. So so we'll keep that rolling. We'll preview the Brewers-Marlins series as well on that Friday solo. Uh, But yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about uh, the rest of the week. So hope you guys are tuned in and tapped in. And as we said, you know, follow us on Twitter. Let us know your Cardinals hate list. Um, and then also uh, make sure that you're subscribed to the pod. We appreciate it. All right, take care. Have a good one. We'll see you, see you on Thursday with Mitch. Bye.